0: And welcome to Introducing Me, I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I'll give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce Jake, they're a resident DJ at a few LGBT clubs in DC, and they identify as pansexual and non-binary. They also recently launched a nonprofit that they're very excited about and will likely share more details when they get talking. So I'm excited to get to know Jake today. So Jake, thank you so much for being here. Why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself?
1: Sure, so uh, first and foremost, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Um, So yeah, a little bit about me. Um, I'm 29, like you said, I'm non-binary, pansexual, um, very much so on the autism spectrum. So, uh, you know, most people, very quickly noticed that I'm ADHD as well. So apologies to your guests and listeners in advance because this is going to be very sporadic. So buckle up. Um, but yeah, um, mostly I'm a DJ. I worked in politics. I've worked in journalism. Um, I run nightclub events all around the country. Um, specifically for, bear with me here because this is a long explanation. Uh, LGBTQ, sex positive, body positive, kink positive, uh, gender inclusive, all race welcoming parties, basically known as circuit parties, um, pretty much everywhere. Um, that is an event that we run called Lights Out, Barks Out, or Lobo. Um, as you mentioned, we did just launch a nonprofit off of that called the Lobo Initiative, which we're very, very excited about. Um, it's actually been a dream of mine for a while, um, focusing specifically on LGBTQ youth and adults um, and those with disabilities, uh, giving them the helping hand to chase their dreams. But we'll loop back around on that. Um, yeah, and mostly. Uh, I'm a pup, I'm a furry, I'm a kinkster, and I am unapologetically an open book and very just proud of who I am and my identity.
0: And it's so great when someone can be so proud of their identity. So can you talk a little bit more about how you came to the various identities that you hold?
1: Yeah, so this is actually a really, really interesting story. So um, I, I, I actually did a podcast earlier today with a friend and I told this story. And the gist of it is basically I came out I had to come out three times, essentially, before my family finally got it. Um, so the first person I came out to was my grandmother. And she and I had a very, very unique relationship. She was my best friend in the entire world. She passed away a couple of years ago. But she was literally my rock. Um, adored her with everything in my life. Uh, we, we were so close that often people, like whenever she started dating someone, would have to get my approval before they could date her. Um, we literally, it was it was scary how close we were. Um, you know uh when i turned 18 she snuck me into the red light district like there's a whole she was a wonderful woman uh when i came out to her she was like fuck yeah like love that um he, and i was like i told her like mama i'm pretty sure that i like guys and she was like okay well do you like guys do you like girls i'm like i think both and she's like oh well that's bisexual and here's what that means and i was 15 so she was like blowing my mind and then she proceeded to go on a tangent about how she used to have like these lgbtq parties in like the 50s and 60s at her house for people um some of the biggest gay parties like in the area she would host because this is just what she did um and so i came up to her and she's like well have you told your mother and i'm like no i'm terrified and she's like i think she'll be okay so i walked home that day and i swear to god i was like super pumped i'm like yeah this is gonna go great super confident i walked in opened my mom's door flung it open i was like hey Mom, I'm bisexual. And I swear to God, she looked at me and said, No, you're not. And I'm like, You're absolutely right. I am not. I was joking and I walked out and did not talk about it again until I was 18. Um, So, complete turnaround there. Um, At which point, uh, when I turned 18, I went back to my mother, this time as an 18 year old. So much more calm and was like, Mom, I am serious. I'm pretty sure. Notice the difference here. I am pansexual. And she's like, Okay, cool. Love that for you. Because she had changed a lot in those years. And then there was dad. (laughs) And, you know, as someone who is born male, assigned male birth, um, having the conversation with dad is a little more difficult, or at least I thought it would be. Um, So I went into dad and I was like, hey, I need to have a conversation for you. And this is very difficult for me. And I was like 23, 24 at this time. And just to set the tone, we were sitting at the kitchen table in St. Thomas overlooking the water, which I thought was the perfect place to drop this on him. Because why not? Um, At which point I literally was like, dad, I'm pretty sure. I'm non-binary and pansexual. And he was like, cool, we've been waiting for you to tell us. And was like, we've all known. I was like, what, what do you mean you've all known? I'm like, well, I mean, Jake, don't take this the wrong way, but you're not exactly the pinnacle of straight presenting masculine dude, bro. And I'm like, okay, well, that's offensive because I like sports and stuff. But all right, fair. Um, And also, like, we all have access to your internet history. And I was like, cool, noted, going to fix that. Um, But literally... He then proceeded to call like seven people who were all like, yay, we finally came out of the closet. And that's great. Now we can talk about it. It doesn't have to be a quiet thing. So that is how my family found out. How I got here, I kind of went through a metamorphosis of I'm gay. Then I was bi. Then I was pan. And then I said it on pan, non-binary, demisexual. And that's just been evolving.
0: It's great to hear how like you had like your first response that you got from your grandmother was so positive. So like you had that support, even though like the immediate next response was not positive until years later. Um, so I'm glad you had that, that first good experience. Um, and you, you mentioned when you introduced yourself, um, about being on the autism spectrum and having ADHD. So can you talk a little bit about what that is like in your day to day life?
1: Yeah. So, um, Having ADHD, I like to explain it as being like incredibly motivated with no motivation. Um, is the easiest way I explain it because I literally can go through these phases where I'm like, all right, I'm gonna do six days worth of work in an hour, and then go through a phase where it's like, all right, I'm gonna put off six days worth of work in fourteen days. Like, it's literally it is it is the nightmarish child that is ADHD. Um, that being said, it has also allowed me to cultivate these crazy ridiculous ideas that pop into my head and then just kind of metamorphosize themselves into these realities right like it's it's one of those things where it is both a blessing and a curse but when paired with autism it's like the double whammy of wonderfulness because the autism means that um i sometimes don't read signals at all like completely miss it in fact my first girlfriend had to literally sit me down and shake me and be like i want to date you Until to get it through to me because I was like, I was completely oblivious. I just thought we were friendly. Um, so that was fun. Um, but the autism and the ADHD in terms of work is where it really kind of hits me. Um, because in addition to that, I also have mitochondrial disease, um, which is basically in its purest form. The mitochondria cells in my body don't work right. Mitochondria cells are in every single organ in the body. Therefore, the easiest way to explain it is nothing in my body works the way it should full stop. I am literally a walking miracle at this point. Um, But essentially, because of all that, especially with the autism and ADHD, working in a field where I have to communicate with people for a living, um, it can be hard being a DJ. And I have to work kind of twice as hard sometimes to get accepted by my fellow DJs. It's not as bad now that I'm established, but when I was first starting, it was literally this kind of almost double standard of, well, I've got to be twice as good, twice as hardworking, twice as motivated because I have all these things working against me. Before you factor in being a non-binary DJ, which is another thing that I had to work twice as hard at because as a non-binary DJ, essentially the expectation is that, you know, the the gay DJ world of circuit parties are mostly dominated by cisgender gay white men. Um, And so as a non-binary presenting DJ, I've had to work twice as hard to get there. Um, So when all those things factor in, it kind of became this overwhelming compounding, almost overwhelming at times level of things to deal with. All that coupled with the fact that I also sometimes don't handle emotions well because of the autism. So I have this overwhelming need for everyone to like me, but assume everybody hates me, which is a super, super, super fun time to kind of navigate that. But yeah, it's it's literally one of those things where I've gotten much better at it now as I've gotten older. But certainly growing up, it was difficult. Um, I remember being a kid and like, especially 18, 19, 20, like most 18, 19, 20 year olds, I think I knew everything. and knew absolutely nothing. Um, and um, that kind of set the tone for me, and has kind of been an encapsulating journey from how I've gone from 18, 19, 20 to now 29. And have kind of come full circle to where I've come to accept my autism, not as a, as a bad thing, but as a good thing. I've come to accept my ADHD, not as a bad thing, but a good thing. And all the things that I've seen as blemishes, I now embrace openly.
0: And how were you able to get to that point of embracing everything openly and switching the mindset of, Like ADHD, for example, is bad and therefore, but now like you're able to embrace it and see the good in it.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of it was just kind of self-reflection, right? Like it was one of those things where um, all the things that growing up I viewed as crutches or as negatives kind of started playing a part in making all the things that I've done what they are, right? Like I don't believe my event Lobo would be as successful as it is if I was not who I was. Like I believe that part of the reason I'm able to make this event work is because I understand it from an aspect of someone who is in the position that I am in. And that is why we are so adamant about making our events, gender inclusive, safe spaces for people with autism, like, you know, having a sensory overload room. These are all things that we account for when we hold events because of my own life experience. Um, so I think that over time, as I began to grow and grow and grow, and I saw that all of these things that were, yes, hard to navigate as a kid started helping me understand others going through it, led led me to a place where I could empathize and understand. And so it's almost as if it was like, yeah, it sucked that I had to go through it, but now maybe I can help make it easier for others. And that was a huge thing that I'm like really, really excited and proud about. Um, In terms of... Like the other main thing that happened is that just through like learning lessons, like I worked in politics for 12 years. And one of the things you have to do in politics is talk to people. So I kind of forced myself to not let the autism be a thing and learn how to read people. Um, And that was just something that because of what I've done for work, I've had to adapt. And I've always sworn, especially since I turned 22, 23, that I was not going to let my medical conditions define me, right? Like I literally... Had, that is a mantra of mine, is that I am more than the sum of my medical conditions, full stop. Um, I am not going to be defined by what people perceive I can and can't do. Um, my doctor told me when I wanted to become a DJ that I couldn't because it would be bad for me medically, and my response was, watch me. Um, and I've done it. And I'm literally proving the odds wrong day by day. Um, so in a lot of ways, all of these things have kind of just compounded and led me to a place where... I have just kind of said you know what yeah I have blah 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 but you know what there are people who have blah 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 and are doing great things why can't I?
0: So how did you go from politics to being a DJ?
1: <laughs> yeah so this is a fun story this is uh this is one that uh I traditionally like don't tell many people but I'm actually happy to disclose on this on this podcast because I think it's a good medium um so in 2016 I worked on the presidential and um I worked for a party. I'm not going to say which one, but you should be able to figure it out based on the telling the story. Um, and a certain somebody became a candidate and I quit my job immediately uh, because I could not in good conscience continue to work for that party. Uh, that led to some, quote unquote, uh, angrily worded messages and um, led me to leave where I was living to move to a new state for safety. Um, At which point I said, you know what? I don't want to work in politics anymore. I'm kind of done with this. What else can I do with my life? Um, And the thing you have to understand about this is that I essentially had worked for my entire life to get to the presidential level of campaigning. And I did it at 21 and 22 without a college degree. Like I was a field organizer in Fairfax County at 21 on a presidential election without a college degree that doesn't happen unless you are really really good at your job. Um but my view and my experience was so twisted that legitimately I was like I'm done. I'm out, can't do it anymore. And the thing with politics is that if you're not fully invested, you cannot be working in it because your job has to be committed 24/7 to politics or you need to get out. It's a very unique job. That being said, um I took a year off and I had been DJing, you know, quietly in the bedroom, ironically on a game called Second Life because it was a place where I could go and experience and get, ha- literally have a captive crowd. No matter how good or bad I was, they weren't going to go anywhere and they were forced to listen to me because that's where they were and that's where I was and we were all there in the metaverse. Um, and so I would practice my craft there. Um, ironically, we talked about it, you know, 22, 23, 24 year old Jake thought he knew everything, got bullied a lot on Second Life. Got told he was never going to amount to anything on Second Life. So he left Second Life and said, I won't become a real-life DJ. Watch me. And so I quit politics and decided to pursue DJing. Um, Now, I will warn people uh, as a trigger warning that this next part can be a little rough. So just bear with me because I think that's important. The next part of the journey involves me literally uh, going to work at a sex club as a flogging demo. Um, My friend said, hey. You know, we need a, we need someone to be a submissive bottom for the demos. And I was like, you know what? I got nothing going on. Why not? I showed up. There was a DJ there. I spoke to the owner. I was like, hey, um, this is about three months in. I was like, I would really like the opportunity to DJ. And he's like, well, the DJ called out. Let's see what you got. Um. So he threw me on there on equipment I had never played on with music I had never played with. And I played the set and I was like pumped. I'm like, yeah, that was great. And he came up to me and was like, that was one of the worst sets I've ever heard in my entire life. And I said, oh boy. And he said, but, and this is the but, and I do have never said this to anybody before. There is a certain level of potential there that I have not seen in anybody that I've ever worked with. And there is something that you have that I cannot teach, which is a drive and a passion to make it to the top. And that's something I can't teach. But what I can teach is how to do this properly. So that was David Merrill. And he took me under his wing and he started teaching me how to DJ. And then week by week by week by week, I would get better and better and better. And then he brought me into his other party jocks. And week by week by week by week, I would get better and better. And um, eventually, I started gaining a following. And then we hit one year anniversary and I was doing multiple parties. And then um, we get to the defining moment of my DJ career that really kind of changed everything. And that is when um, my furry friends pushed me to apply for Anthrocon. Now, I am not a furry or I wasn't at this time. I am now, but I was not at this time. And I was like, you know what? Fine. I will apply as a joke because there's no way they're going to pick the guy who's a pup who they don't know who's not a furry to DJ. And... For those of you who don't know, Anthrocon is the largest furry con in in the country. It's in Pittsburgh. It's a very big deal. It's it's like it is for most furry DJs, it is considered the pinnacle of like DJing if you get to play Anthrocon. So I applied. So I'm sitting at a Jewish deli eating my matzo ball soup and my potato pancakes, which are two of my favorite things to eat as a nice Jewish boy. And um, I'm sitting there and I'm sitting with my friend Kita, and I get a text and suddenly my phone starts blowing up. Like literally, and I'm like, what did I do? Am I getting canceled on Twitter? Like, what's going on? And it just I look, and lo and behold, congratulations, you've been selected to DJ Anthrocon on Saturday night. And I was like, Uh oh. Um, I have no plan to go to this convention. I have no hotel room booked. I have no transportation. I was like, Oh, and the con is in two days. So I look at Kita and I call up my best friend and basically brother by choice, Corey, a.k.a. Phoenix and our friend Gunner. And I say, hey, guys, um, I need you to get in the car with me and drive to Pittsburgh. And I need you to not ask any questions until we get there, um, because I knew if I told them what we were going to, they would say absolutely over our dead body. No. So they agreed because they love me. And we got in the car and we drive. And as we're approaching Pittsburgh, about 30 minutes out, I'm like, OK, so here's the deal. We're going to Anthrocon, the furry convention. I'm DJing. And I'm telling you this now because I know you aren't going to turn the car around and drive three hours back. And they were like, all right, I guess we're here. So let's do it. Um, Now as an aside to the story, because I think it's important to point out, um, furries have a way of saying, calling each other furry trash as a term of endearment. Um, Now, Corey did not know this at the time. So we were walking through the marketplace and he saw, um, he saw somebody being called trash and, uh, Corey, blessing his heart, like in in the most protective person that he is kind of way, ran over to these two kids and was like, hey, you shouldn't be calling him trash. That's rude. You know, you shouldn't talk to somebody like that. And the furries looked at him like he had three heads and then explained the situation. But that's always like a highlight for me. But sure enough, we did the DJ thing at Anthrocon. It was great. And then a week later, we launched Lobo, which became a furry pup party at the DC Eagle, which then moved to Green Lantern and is now in eight cities. And all of that, combined is how we got to where we are at because without Lobo and without Anthrocon and without the bathhouse I don't get to become a dj that plays all over the country
0: right can you talk a little bit more about what exactly Lobo is
1: yeah so Lobo stands for Lights Out Barks Out it was founded by myself and my friend Pilot and Corey about three years ago we just had our three-year anniversary and you know we did the first one and it was supposed to be like a pup furry gathering, right? We expected maybe 50 people. We did 200 and we're like, oh, we might have something here. Um, and slowly but surely, the party grew to expand and include more aspects like all kinks and littles and furries and pups and straights and gay and lesbian and trans. And eventually we just became this melting pot of everybody, right? Like where everybody could feel comfortable at this party um and we started recognizing that and so we turned it into a business and we brought it on the road to chicago and then columbus and then new york and then pittsburgh and so on down the line um but what we what we ultimately wanted to accomplish with it and what is at the core of lobo and always has been and always will be is the ideals of our four pillars of inclusion diversity you know openness and most importantly never pricing anybody out we always have free tickets for anybody who can't afford to go they just have to tell us there's a no questions asked policy because. What we try to do with Lobo is we're not just a party. We don't just come in, take money, and leave. We invest in the communities that we're in, and we try to be supportive. We create Telegram chats. We create you know, these opportunities to basically allow the communities to thrive, and that's what we aim for. But ultimately, we did not just want to be a party that takes money and leave. So that's kind of important for us. So we were never going to price anybody out. Um, What Lobo has now become is life-changing for a lot of people. Uh, We get messages daily like, hey, I didn't have a friend base, or hey, I came out here, and now I have this extensive network of people I can talk to. And all of that is just insane for me because I never thought that I would be in a position to create something like this. And often people are like, well, Ultra, you're doing all this. I'm like, no, Ultra's not doing any of this. Ultra has an incredible team behind them. And an incredible business partner in Corey and Kyle and Nano, and all of us collectively have made this. And we're nothing about the community. If people don't go, the event is nothing. So I always want to stress that, like, yes, while it may be my name at the top, along with Corey's and a couple others, it is very much a community-run aspect. And one thing that we're also very proud of is that we are a minority-run and owned business. You know, I am non-binary. Nano is Native American. A bunch of our over management is Latinx or BIPOC, so or gender fluid, or so on down the line, and we're very, very, very happy about that.
0: And that's so great that like you've had this chance to create something that's so inclusive, and it's like you're like it's not just me doing this here. So, what was it like then creating the nonprofit?
1: Yeah. So. The Global Initiative was something that we had always wanted to do. You know, the nonprofit was always a goal for me in terms of, like, the long-term goal. Um, once we decided to do it, I was like, okay, let's pull this off. And the next question was, well, what's the mission statement? What do you want to aim to do? And we did, a, we did our research. The Trevor Project covers people who are younger, usually up into a certain age. And there's a lot of LGBTQ charities that do a lot of stuff. But what we wanted to focus on was LGBTQ youth and adults, and especially those with disabilities. We wanted to hit a market that we felt was being left behind. Um, You know, nine times out of ten, and this is just something that's important for me to point out, people with disabilities are not the thought, they're the afterthought. You know, it's, it's oftentimes they get advocated for when it's convenient, not when it's, you know, most important. Um, if I asked you, if I, as an example, if I asked nine out of 10 people or 10 people what mitochondrial disease was, nine out of 10 of them would think I was saying multiple sclerosis, right? And so this is something that when you talk about an even more marginalized community of LGBTQ with disability, they are getting left behind at even more alarming rates. And I went to school with an IEP. So if anybody's like qualified to talk about people with disabilities getting left behind like especially with things like public schooling and stuff a poster child right like like i mean thankfully my iep was fairly decent but i've seen it so while we are not focused only on those with disabilities our mission statement does mention those with disabilities specifically so we we are focusing on those lgbtq youth and adults and lgbtq youth and adults with disabilities um, we kind of have three main pillars that we're trying to achieve. The first one is, especially for year one, is our safe spaces program, and what we're trying to do with that is create Zoom or in-person meetings, probably twice a week. One where people could just come and hang out and chat and meet like-minded people, and a second one that focuses more on education. Right, so like, what is consent? What is abuse? How to say no? Or like, those are some of the heavy topics. Or such things like you know how to DJ. What is, you know, what is talking about sci-fi, like stuff all over, right? So that, that second session is more of an education or a themed conversation. The second thing we want to focus on is our scholarship program. Um, we made it a cognizant decision that we were not going to give checks or money to anybody. We were going to give equipment or classes or things that would be tangible to help them chase their dreams. Um, one of the big things that we wanted the nonprofit to be was that supportive corner that was ready to fight for you when nobody else would. You know, because when I wanted to become a DJ, I didn't have in my corner right away the people I needed that could lift me up until I was much older. So we want to be that we are going to lift you up and we're going to help you get there. And one of the things that includes is, you know, let's take DJing, for example. You tell us you want to become a DJ, but you can't afford the equipment. We get you the equipment and we pair you with a mentor who can help you learn the business and open doors for you. Um, And that's one of the things that we think makes us unique is that it allows us to basically accomplish both things, but we did not want to just be like, here's a check for $800, go. And then the third thing we wanted to accomplish is more of the mentorship program where you come and tell us, Hey, I want to go into coding and it and we pair you with someone who can help you learn coding and it and help guide you. Or, you know, Hey, I want to do art and we pair you with an artist who can help guide you. And so that is, these are all things that we are working on as we kind of lay the groundwork for year one.
0: And so obviously, you share that, like you're not alone in doing this. You have other support, and there are other people within the Lobo initiative. So, how are you able to grow and provide support for different people and kind of expand the network beyond?
1: Yeah. so for right now, like most nonprofits, I mean, the obvious answer is we're doing fundraising. Um, you know, we're trying. Uh, you can check us out um on our website. We're technically at lightsoutmarksout dot com right now, but we're about to move to the dot org in a couple days. We're launching a new website, so that is that is important. Um, but obviously the biggest the biggest thing people can do about it for us right now, if they if they don't want to donate, is just spread the word. Um, we're constantly looking to bring in people to our mentorship program, um, especially those who can provide uh the mentoring aspect. Um, so you know um we we just we literally are so new at this point, we're just laying groundwork. But um yeah, obviously the most the most prevalent answer is spreading the, the net is gonna require some heavy lifting and that's gonna require some funding. But we are we are confident that we'll get there.
0: So are you then like also working this like the events that you were doing?
1: Yeah. So one of the things that we have to be careful about, and this is always something that's super fun to talk about, is because Lobo is a for-profit and the lobo initiative is a non-profit the two can't technically intermingle now we can do events where lobo is hosting an event and the proceeds are benefiting the lobo initiative but there's a whole bunch of legal mumbo jumbo which we could do an entire podcast on just like what we can and can't legally do um but yes one of the plans is to donate some of the proceeds from some of our events to the nonprofit and that will certainly help lay the seed funding. But, uh, yeah, I mean, essentially yes and no is the legal answer.
0: As long as you're following, you know, everything legally, that's, that's what's important.
1: Yes. We, uh, we have done an insane amount of research on what we uh, legally can and cannot say and do and act and put on a poster. We know way too much about this. Honestly, I could get a law degree at this point. (laughs)
0: So I wanna open the door for you to kind of share about anything that you specific like want to talk about. Um, so something I might not prompt with the question. Um, you can really share any, any stories or about yourself that you would like to share at this point.
1: Yeah, I mean, so um, I think one of the stories I always love to tell people is the story of, I mentioned my grandmother and uh, we are very, very close or we were very, very close. And I think the easiest way to explain how close we were is, of course, the Red Light District story, which is, um, you know, one of my favorite stories to tell. Um, But the story basically goes like this. We were going on my brother's Make-A-Wish trip. Um, I had one. My brother had one. My other brother had one. All three of us had Make-A-Wish trips. Um, But his was he wanted to go on a cruise in the Mediterranean. Now, of course, I am 18, which means I am full of testosterone and horny so of course we're going to leave out of Amsterdam so obviously 18 year old me has one objective and only one objective because we're going to be there for three days before the cruise leaves and there is only one thing I don't care about art I don't care about soccer although I did want to see the ix stadium but I had one objective and my mother being the person that she was knew this immediately because before we could even so much as get to the airport she looked at me and said, Jake, don't bring it up. Don't ask. Don't even mention it. We are not going. I don't want to hear about it. The answer is absolutely not. I will not be taking you to the red light district. Do not go. Do not achieve. Just no, 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 no negative, positive. Uh. And before I could even follow it up with what about coffee shop? She's like no to that, too. And I'm like, all right, message received. I was moody about it, but message received. Um, now, my grandmother Oh, apparently was not okay with this answer. Um, because the day before we we're about to get on the cruise ship at 4 a.m., she comes into my room and says, "Wake up, Jake. We're going to the red light district." And I say, "Uh, very funny. Ha ha. You had your fun. I'm going back to sleep." And she's like, "No, seriously, get up. We're going to the red light district." And I'm like, "Okay. Ha ha. You know, goodbye. Good night. See you in the morning." And she's like, "Look, I'm gonna getting in a cab in five minutes. If you're not down there, I'm going without you." And she ripped the blanket off and said, "I hope you're coming." Um, so I uh put on my clothes. I'm like, all right, this is obviously going to be some sort of situation where I go down. My mom's going to yell at me for convincing my grandmother to take me to the red light district, but whatever. I'll play along. We go downstairs and sure enough, there is my grandmother getting in a cab and I'm like, oh, okay, this is happening. So I sprint, I get in the cab. Cool. Awesome. Love that. Um, and we show up. So as we're driving over, I look at my grandmother. I'm like, okay, ground rules. And these are very important. One, do not embarrass me. Two, I do not want to be known as the guy who took their grandmother to the red light district. Three, I just want to peruse. I do not want to do anything. I just want to take in the sights, you know, and see. And she's like, got it. A hundred percent. No problem heard. Now, I should have known right away that this was not going to be received, but we'll get to that. Um. So we get out and, you know, we start walking our way through each door. And, you know, obviously they dance and they're dressed and. In- certain way at the red light district or not dressed in some cases and my grandmother walks up to the first door and she's like jake what do you think about this one and i'm like okay i don't know if if you if you got my message but i'm like again just here to take in the sights peruse don't want to do anything and she's like got it got it got it, got it cool got it a couple of doors down she's like jake how about this one i'm like okay i feel like you have an ulterior motive here and i don't know if it's because you think i'm a virgin or what's going on but again Just kind of here to take in the sights. And she's like, got it, got it. Yep, no problem. Definitely got it. Third door, fourth door. Okay, we're doing this again. She's like, Jake. And I'm like, all right, my mom, I think we need to have a conversation. And I explained it again. I just want to see and observe. And she's like, I was like, why don't you go over there on the other side of the street and just, you know, we'll take some distance. Now, in, in hindsight, this was my mistake. And the next part was definitely my own doing by sending her to the other side of the street. But for those of you who have never been to Amsterdam, it the streets are very narrow, and they're full of people in the red light district. Like, it's body to body. So if someone was to say, yell across the street, everybody's going to hear it, right? There's nowhere to hide, essentially. So my grandmother starts walking down the next doors, and I kind of stop, like, in my tracks, because I can see in slow motion what's about to happen. It's clear as day to me how we're going to end up here. And I'm, like, mortified, because part of me is like, well, I can't stop it, so I'm just watching in slow motion as my... 18-year-old life is basically about to end, essentially, and I'm about to be embarrassed in front of, oh, I don't know, 10,000 people at the Red Light District, but nevertheless, um, she walks up to the door, and without skipping a beat, and I swear to God, without skipping a beat, literally goes, and, and as loud as she can, screams across the alley, Jake, Jake, this one has a penis, is this more your style? And I stop and everybody stops and everybody just kind of looks around to figure out who the hell Jake is and why this 75 year old woman is screaming about penises. Um, And I am now beat bright red. And so I like hang my head and I slowly walk across the street through the crowd of people who are staring at me to the door. And before I can even protest to my grandmother, she opens the door and pushes me inside. And I'm like, okay, well, now we're here. Right. So um, I sit on the bed with this lovely, lovely, lovely person. And we just talk for an hour about our feelings. And I ask them about what it's like working there. And we have this conversation. And then, uh, you know, I come out and uh, my grandmother shoves me out of the way, completely unamused with my opinion on the situation and goes, well, how was it? Was he fine? Did he do okay? And I'm like, what is happening? My grandmother wants a sex report on how I've done. Like, this is what we're doing at the Red Light District. Awesome. Love that. Um, but anyways, we get done and I'm like, okay, it's time to go home. She's like, well, we can't go home yet. We have to go to a coffee shop. And I'm like, okay. And now again, it is very important for me to stress. 18 year old ultra did not know what a coffee shop in Amsterdam at this time was. I just assumed it was a Starbucks. Now, if you've never been, it is not a Starbucks. In fact, it could not be further from a Starbucks, but we walk in. And at this point, it's like 6 a.m. and I'm starving. And Ultra has also never had weed at this point in his life either. So I order a pound brownie because I'm starving. I am just famished, right? And this is a coffee shop in Amsterdam. So if your listeners know what that is, they should see where this is going. And I scarf that bad boy down the whole thing in like two minutes. And I look at my grandmother and she's like cracking up, cackling. And I'm like, what? Why is it so funny? She's like, you're going to find out in about 20 minutes. Um, and sure enough, the brownie hits. And like, I am just so baked. I mean, like it is, it is unbelievable. Like, and I didn't know what was going on. I thought I was dying. I was like, what did you do to this brownie? Did you lace it? What's going on? And I think I'm saying clear sentences, but my grandmother recorded me. It was coming out as garbled sounds because I can't get words out because I'm so high. My mom at this point was very anti-drug use, right? So we roll back up and my grandmother buys me as we're walking back from a bodega sunglasses because you can see it in my eyes. And we walk in and my mom is sitting in the hotel lobby staring daggers at the door like I legit thought I wasn't going to make it to the cruise ship. I thought my life is just going to end here in Amsterdam and that's OK. Um, But she's staring daggers at the door and she comes up and she's screaming and yelling and I'm trying to process it. But all I can catch is like every other word. And um, she's literally screaming, like, how dare you corrupt your grandmother into taking you to the red light district? You know, you she, she's just an innocent old woman. And, you know, she would never. And my grandma's laughing. She's living her best life. She thinks this is hilarious. And I think I'm putting up a pretty good defense. Again, I'm like, no, no, no. She took me. But again, all this coming out is like garbled words. And she's like, are you high? And I'm like, no. And this goes on for about 15 minutes. And then my grandmother jumps in and is like, Sharon, Sharon, it's fine. I took him. Um, needless to say, I was pretty much on house arrest for, like, the rest of the cruise. Um, I did not see land until we got back to Amsterdam. And uh, that is kind of, like, a little bit of insight into my grandmother and I's relationship. Just kind of the the relationship that we had.
0: I think it's a great story to have chosen to share. Um, and it, it just goes to show that, like, every family relationship is so different um and you know you can look back at it now and uh appreciate probably much more than you know while you were uh (laughs) stuck on the cruise uh
1: yes (laughs) that is for sure um at the time I was pretty pissed but also like one of the best stories I have to tell like I mean it is a hundred percent one of those situations where it's like this is one of those stories that you can't even make up. Like it's just, it's it's something that you just had to see to believe, and it's 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 something that I truly think encapsulates just the kind of woman she was. Right, like she. I often say I'm my grandmother's son, not my mother's son, because my mom's very type A, my grandma was very type C, and my grandma very much raised me. But like, yeah, um, she was just such a wonderful woman and would literally give you like the shirt off her back if she could. Um, And that is partly why I wanted to start the nonprofit to begin with and why I want Lobo to be the way that it is. And partly why I am the person I am and I act the way that I do is because I try to live my life the way that she did, which was Yeah, you know, I may have been dealt such and such or yeah, I may have blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, I want to make sure that if I died tomorrow, people would say blah, blah, blah about me, right? Like people would say that they did their best or that they really left an impact. And that's kind of what I was going for.
0: Yeah, I think that's so important to want to be able to do more for the outside world. Now I'm curious, since you mentioned um, that that was your brother's Make-A-Wish initiative, if you'd be willing to share what yours was.
1: Yeah, um, mine was pretty basic. Uh, I, went um, I, mean, was pretty um, I went to Disney World. I mean, it was pretty straightforward. But I went to Disney World as an 18-year-old, so I went to like a lot of the nightclubs and a bunch of stuff, and got to see TNA wrestling, which was a big thing for me because I'm a big I'm a big sports and wrestling guy, being from Philadelphia. Um, so. Like, those were all things that were important to me. Um, Also, like, I just enjoy being at Disney and Universal. I say to give kids the world. I go back and volunteer at Give Kids the World currently uh, once or twice uh, every other year. So those are all things that are important to me. Um, Really, just kind of like it was just at that time, it was something that I knew I would enjoy.
0: Yeah, and I think that makes sense. And, you know, being able to do it at 18 is so different than as a younger kid.
1: Yeah, for sure. It was definitely a unique experience. Um, you know, I got to go to a lot of the fine dining places that I wouldn't have enjoyed as a kid. I got the, the Cinderella's Castle thing. Like, it was a really cool experience.
0: Now, before I start to wrap things up, is there anything else that you would like to share with the listeners?
1: Yeah, Um. I think that, you know, for me, um, if there's one thing, and this is always something I stress, if there's one thing that I want people to take away from from this podcast, and I know this is going to be a bit of a tangent, so bear with me, it's that despite what somebody may have going on in their life, or despite what crutches you think they may or may not have, um, especially for your disabled friends, um, we oftentimes just want to be treated like everybody else, right? Like we just want to be a part of society, and a lot of times, I think people. Like look at me and I don't look disabled, right? But I had a feeding tube. I struggled to walk sometimes. Like I had all these things, but once they find out, they kind of treat me differently. And I think that it's important, especially as members of the LGBTQ and as allies to understand that what we need is not necessarily for people to quote unquote, oh, I'm so sorry here. Let me help you. And we need more, man, it's really impressive that you're doing all these things. How can we help you achieve what you want to achieve? Or man, you know, we see that the doctors aren't listening to you. How can we help you advocate? And I think that it's one of those things, again, not to get too off the topic, but it's just it's one of those situations where uh with platforms like this, I always like to stress, you know, with disability comes ability, right? like 95% of the disability community can achieve anything they want and and do anything they want. They just need that little helping hand along the way. And so, you know, part of why we started the nonprofit is because we see this community that's just screaming, begging for any type of like, almost not attention because that's not what we want, but acknowledgement that we are here and that we are struggling sometimes, but that we are not broken. And that when people see us, we don't want them to see what we can't do. We want them to see what we can do. And so if we can help be that voice, then that's kind of what we're going for.
0: And I totally appreciate you sharing that. I think it is such an important reminder for people to hear, so thank you. For sure. At the end of all of my episodes, I do ask my guests a random question. So my question for you is: How do you feel about social media?
1: Oh boy! Well, this is this is a, this is actually a pretty loaded question. So I this is a good one to ask. So this will be fun. So in addition to everything else we've talked about, I am also uh, the president of a soccer supporters group for LGBTQ supporters in DC for DC United called Two Hundred Two Unique. Um, and social media has enabled us to spread a message of love. It has also enabled us to receive a lot of messages of hate, um, and including one today where uh, somebody called us toxic. And I believe the exact words were conceited wokes because we were LGBTQ in, this, in the how dare we be LGBTQ in the uh, straight supporters section. But, you know, whatever. Uh, I think that social media has done a lot of good for the world. I also think that social media has created a lot of toxicity and a lot of self-image issues and a lot of problems that we will not ever be able to fix because now our, our generations can't live without social media. I think it's a necessary evil. I think that a lot of companies need social media for marketing. You know, 20 years ago, social media was just on the outskirts right you know we went and then we went through the myspace generation and then we went through the tumblr generation and then twitter and facebook and so on and so forth but all of that has created this need for social media acceptance right this need for social media likes follows almost a non an almost a never-ending quest to achieve it and it has created in the mindset of people that even if they are successful in the outside world, if their number of followers is not deemed up to the aspect that they want it to be, they are unsuccessful. They are not worthy. They are whatever. And so when you ask me kind of about social media, and again, I don't mean to go on a tangent. This is just something I feel very strongly about. I think that we can't have the conversation of is this good or bad without acknowledging that it is. What it is, right? It is a behemoth of good and bad. It has led to such things as deep fake videos. It has led to other things, such as great videos where people can feel inspired. You know, it is truly, I think, the unregulated wild wild west, and that is okay. I just think that, as someone who literally requires social media for their business and for their marketing, um, I wish sometimes it wasn't as toxic as it is.
0: All right, that brings this episode to a close. I'll, of course, be leaving plenty of links for Jake in the description. So links and information about the Lobo Initiative and some social media for Jake, Uh, and you can check out their SoundCloud. So feel free to check all of that out in the description. And of course, in the description, as always, is my website and my email address if you'd like to connect with me and be a guest on the show check out all of our social media you are able to do that directly from that information and if you'd like to support the podcast monetarily a separate link to do that is in the description as well and i always appreciate the support so thank you so much jake for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story until next time bye
1: bye everyone